from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. The Craig Needles Podcast, the Friday Roundtable here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonYouthToday.ca. And on your favorite podcast app, we thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening to uh, this week's edition. We are joined here in the studio by political insider Nathan Carancy. We're joined by the news manager here at Blackburn Media, Scott Kitching, and the deputy mayor in the city of London, Sean Lewis. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Hello. Always a pleasure. Sorry, Scott. You're going to have to really work hard to get a word in edgewise with the two of us in here today. (laughs) I know. We should have brought a couple pictures just between you and I, Sean. That would have been a beauty. (laughs) That would have made for a more entertaining. Next time. time. And it's on Craig, by the way. Yeah, of course. It's it's always on me. (laughs) Well, I thought Blackburn was picking up the tab, so. Uh, Let's... uh, Let's talk first about, speaking of picking up the tab, uh, the City of London picking up the tab for some improvements at Budweiser Gardens. Now, I understand that when people hear taxpayer dollars going to arena improvements or arena building, typically that's a bad deal for the people who are the taxpayers. Now, in this case, it's an arena the City of London owns. It's a bit of a different conversation. Uh, management over there uh, says, hey, we've got to do some back-of-house improvements and some uh, other public-facing improvements in order to continue to get big events like World Figure Skating Championships, like the Junos and things along those lines. Uh, Sean, obviously, this is something that you're involved in from a, a council perspective, tourism perspective. What's your thoughts on what we should be doing with this Budweiser Gardens project? Yeah, this is a no-brainer for me. Uh, I am actually going to have the vice chair take over to chair this part of the committee next week because I'm the chair of that committee because I'm going to speak really really strongly in favor of this this is this is a no-brainer absolutely we need to put this money in uh and and renovate the bud and refresh it uh that was envisioned in the original uh, agreement uh that about halfway through the course of the building's 50-year life cycle that it would need some upgrades and some improvements uh you know we've seen it we've heard it uh you're right it's not just my council and and deputy mayor hat but also my tourism hat if we want to keep attracting world-class concert performances, if we want to keep attracting great shows, we want to keep attracting events like the Briar, uh, you know, a future Memorial Cup run, uh, those kind of things, we have to make some improvements. Um, Back of the house for, you and Scott will appreciate, uh, the back of the house needs some refreshing for media purposes. Um, (laughs) There's some needs there for staging uh, concert events that need some refreshing, but also the customer service facing improvements, which are actually projected to increase the revenue. And I think people need to remember two things on this. First, uh, it's not tax dollars from your pocket and my pocket. This is going to be funded out of the tourism fund, uh, which is coming from the hotel tax. The only reason we are allowed under provincial law to collect the hotel tax is if we spend it on tourism-related infrastructure and activities. So we have this to spend this money that. on yeah. that. Absolutely. So that's the first thing is it's not coming out of uh, Craig and Nathan and Scott's property tax bill. That's, that's a really important piece of this. And the other piece is the city gets 70% of this facility's operating revenues on an annual basis. So we are putting money in so that we can get more money out for the next 25 years. Nathan, is this a wise use of taxpayer dollars? I think absolutely. One thing just to reiterate, you talked about the tourism fund. Um, and one of the key items would be to understand that aside from our hospitals, which you wouldn't uh, classify as attracting tourism, but they do bring people in, um, the Bud Gardens would be the probably principal and most successful capital asset that the city owns, or at least a large chunk of it, that brings in tourism dollars. So 
to make improvements are great. I mean, I think more interestingly, the it would be a question of what are the uh, improvements that would be most useful. I think as we've discussed, or as you just articulated in the report, we'll articulate, um, there's plenty of these fundamentals that you can go to to make the place better. But there's also, they don't seem, I don't want to say ambitious is not necessarily the word. I'm more interested in understanding what it would take to be more ambitious with renovations at Bud Gardens. 20 years ago, or what is it, just over 20 years ago, the place opened up. Um, it was obviously a big, uh, it was very contentious during the discussion about what to do. I remember those councils as a little child when we were, you know, when it was being discussed. Um, this is very successful. It has been successful. And to the extent that it hasn't, it's that people that are opposed to it or people in London that haven't had the opportunity to go and attend an event there. And as the um, as the venue has diversified the types of performances or sporting events, it's not just the Knights anymore, there's London Lightning, etc. There's new markets that are being reached out to and people that go there understand how valuable it is and, and how much they appreciate it. Again, I have a lot of, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm a smart guy, but I don't have an expertise in uh, these types of downtown or um, you know, sporting arenas. I would be interested at least in getting numbers for what it would take to add seats in the place or make it a bigger venue. I know this is not a, uh, I know that might be too big. It may a, not a be bill. an engineering podcast. Right, but, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but I'd be interested to hear that because I think that's, it, it's that successful and it is full often enough that it's worthy of a discussion. And I think these types of renovations as we enter for your budgeting uh, make all the sense in the world. Uh, my question before we get to, to Scott's take on this is, uh, do we want, more than 9,000 seats for the number one prime tenant of that facility, which is the London Knights. We want a facility that has seats more than 9,000 for junior hockey. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I, uh, like if we want to do concerts and whatever, yeah, bigger mm -hmm. concerts, yeah, we got to get to 15,000, 16,000. Is that what we want for junior hockey? That's, uh, that's, that's tough. Scott, what are your thoughts on the Budweiser Gardens conversation? Well, well just going back to your, the, what you said in the intro, and, and this is something that always – you know, makes my ears prick up. The idea of public money going into sports facilities has always been one that just really rubs me the wrong way. Now, this situation is a little bit different because we're talking about a, a sports arena that that also is is an entertainment facility that is owned by the city. So, I it, it's different for me in in that respect. I mean, we're not talking about you know. Uh, we're not building and, and, the Arizona Coyotes exactly. a new... We're not design, paying uh, billionaires millions yeah, of dollars. Precisely. Right. So it's a little bit different. Now, the question that I do have is, is you know, we're talking about... And correct me if I'm wrong here, because I may have my, my numbers mixed up. My understanding is that we're talking about about $30 million-ish that we're going to be putting into this. Roughly, give or take a few percentage points, half of that coming from the tourism fund, the other half coming from city coffers am i correct no so half of it will come from the tourism fund the other half will what we will actually do what the pr report proposes is issue of debentures right that okay. uh, we will repay through future years of tourism funding coming in uh, as we continue to get heads in beds uh, right. through the hotel tax so i think even if even if it was what what i just described half coming from the tourism fund half coming from the city even if even if that were the case so we're talking about 15 hypothetically 15 million dollars coming from from the city if my recollection is correct when this place was built it was about 30 some odd million dollars of, of city funding so let's say hypothetically that we put those two together that's 47 million dollars a 50-year lifespan of this arena is the city of london getting a million dollars benefit each year from this arena i would say 
Yes, it, indeed it is. So I certainly, if, if you just kind of do some back of the napkin math, this doesn't look as egregious as as it might look at first glance. So I, I can't say that I really have a big problem with it. And be that's honest. before you, you yeah. take into account all of the spinoff benefits, yeah. right? Uh, you think about where this arena is. Smartest thing the council of the day ever did was support putting this downtown. And somewhere Hollywood Cheryl Miller is <laughs> having a big smile across her face. Right. But uh, smartest thing that council ever did was put it downtown. It, Dundas Place would be nothing today without Budweiser Gardens Imagine there. the whole area and without Budweiser Gardens. And if that arena was to start losing events to other venues, if that arena started laying people off, it's not just the jobs in the arena staff, it's all of those restaurants and pubs around it. It's the Covent Garden market vendors who see a lot more foot traffic on game days than they do or before concerts or other things than they do when the arena is sitting empty. So there's a whole lot of spin-off benefit as well uh, that makes that, we would not have a downtown today without Budweiser Gardens. Yeah, we, it, it would be absolutely uh, It'd be destroyed. completely it different, be com- much, much yeah. worse. Well, it, Way worse than the, it the, is. The cranes yeah. that we have in the sky in the downtown corner Those right aren't now? getting built not if there. there's not a Budweiser Gardens venue here. So I just all around, this is a winning scenario. And the fact that there is some private sector dollars going in as well to ultimately improve what is a public asset, great. Uh, this, is the, the, this is the model for a private-public partnership if you ever want to find one. I think this one makes so much more sense than some of the other crazy deals that other levels of governments have done, but that's yep. a whole different podcast. Um, yeah, this is a money <laughs> maker. <laughs> it's a job generator. It's an economic driver. Uh, it's certainly a tourism driver. So this really, for me, it is a no brainer and it's a win-win. It's not like we're, it's not like we're fattening um, uh, the corporation that operates at right. its profit margins without a benefit to the city. Well, we, we, we are. Get, it's that corporation is the city of London. Well, we're, <laughs> right. we're, I'm talking about the private yeah, yeah, sector yeah, exactly. operator right. who, of course, they're going to realize some more profits from this. They're putting money in. They're going to get their profits out. But we're still reaping the benefit of 70% of the operating revenues every year. Right. Uh, so that's that's just a winning scenario for no, it's, us. No, it's absolutely a good thing. I think one of the things that's been discussed for the last 20 years, as much as we talk about tourism and tourism dollars going downtown, it's also a matter of bringing people that live in London, of course, of which I know there are many who have been there and, and go there consistently. Um, I think with the story for the first five years, you can ask a number of uh, politicians and, and business leaders of the day. They would speak with people who were skeptical of the matter. And it's still the story today. Go there. Exactly. There they are residents in Ward 2 today right. who will tell me the only time I go downtown is when I go to Budweiser Gardens. Right. Whether I'm going for a concert, whether I'm going for a Knights game, I don't go downtown for anything except when I'm going to Bud Gardens. So they're not coming downtown at all if we're not. Yeah. making sure that that venue is viable for the next 25 years. I think eventually, sooner than later, quite frankly, we're going to be having a conversation about other sporting uh, venues downtown. I'm looking at soccer. I'm looking at uh, football. I know that that's, it's difficult to do, and I know other people smarter than me have had this idea and put it forward and tried to find right locations for this. But we do have, you know, hockey gets a lot of attention here in London, and for good reason. They work hard at it. But I think if there's been one awakening over the last number of years in London, it's the extent to which we uh, overperform 
in amateur sports and uh, even above and the opportunities that we have. I don't think we're looking at, I, I think it seeps into our, our, our businesses and what we're attracting, you know, uh, uh, beyond that. I mean, well, I'm glad you mentioned other going, sports because it, let's look at how successful Vito Frisia has been with the right. London Lightning franchise uh, and bringing a whole different tenant into Budweiser Gardens who's bringing people down for another sport. He's creating a marketplace, for example, and, and this is where if we're, you know, I, I don't think we're ever going to get a professional sports franchise like an, NF, an NHL or NFL or anything like that. That's, of course, not going to happen in a city like London for, you know, let's say the next 100 years or 50 years. But if we're able to understand what we are good at here in London and focus on that and empowering that, I mean, really, the model obviously was the London Knights to start. I remember, what was the three-win season? They were nothing. They, they played out uh, south of uh, the 401 there. Then we turned it into an asset. We paid attention to them, and they've given us a, a ton of, of hard work. Now, just look at the London Lightning. Again, appe appealing to a whole different market, and it's by far the most successful uh, f uh, team in that league and franchise. Can we scale well, that Well, and up? even These when we look at the London Majors playing out of Labatt Park, the fact that we've got Budweiser Gardens that is really the anchor to Dundas Place, the fact that people can come down and enjoy Dundas Place in the summer and go to a Majors game on a Friday night, you know, that's right. not as viable without Budweiser Gardens there that is supporting Dundas Place all year round. So uh, you're right about other sports. Uh, we do punch above our weight in, in the sports uh, sector. Um, obviously, Western has an incredibly successful football program. We've got the majors. We've got the Lightning. We've got the Knights. Uh, yes, the Knights are the anchor tenant, but we've got lots of success with sports tourism in this city. Nathan, so, did so. you know they play football at Western? Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well aware. Still, oh, okay. still yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's uh, shift gears now. I, I want to talk about another thing that's going to be happening at City Hall next week, and that is about the way we manage traffic in this community. And red light cameras have, by city staff's numbers, reduced the number of serious collisions in the city of London at the intersections they're currently sitting at. Uh, there are a higher number of kind of those fender bender little minor collisions, but as far as the ones where people get seriously hurt or worse, those numbers have gone down. So is this something that we should be doing at more intersections, do you guys think? Um, I want to jump in and just first of all say, yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, red light cameras are they're useful and to the extent that they enforce the law and prevent major injury that's good the one thing though that i would highlight and i know you know people don't like dichotomizing and pitting one idea against another but i would sooner quite frankly like to see every school zone every school zone have a camera that enforces you know 40 Speed. kilometers an hour I'm before we talk that. about any right see what i'm saying yep. like as soon as you bring that up to people it's kind of like a you know what that makes sense I'm a guy that, you know, tends to maybe have a lead foot here and there. But as soon as I get to a school zone, and this isn't, you know, tough guy Nathan talking. It's just just what you do. You just slow down, see what's going on. And it kind of makes you proud to be a citizen. Make sure, hey, people going to the park, you want to enforce that. You want to do that. And, you know, we'll be the first ones to yell at the guy who's speeding through the school zone. So, you know, I think we could probably have both eventually. But I think that in terms of priorities, I would certainly lean towards uh, a report or understanding what that price tag would be. And also, not to get too crazy, see if uh, the school board might be interested in uh, partnering on that type of thing, which I'm not sure they would be. But, uh, you know, I would prefer school zones get a camera before anything else. That's well, if you sense. can pry money out of the school board, I am happy to take it. <laughs> uh, they won't even pay for playground equipment replacements in right. their own schoolyards right now. So I think there's a... Um, uh, 
Well, don't hold your breath or you'll turn blue. I would love asking the question for the purpose of making them say no so that you could look people in the face and go, can you imagine they just said no to this? But anyways. Uh, Now that said, uh, I think it's important to note that the uh, proposal that's coming to Civic Works uh, Committee also increases our number of automated speed cameras, our our photo radar cameras in school zones from two to seven. Um, We have to- And those rotate around. And they rotate around. I would love it if the province would just allow us to leave empty boxes in front of every school zone, even if we have to move the seven cameras around so that you don't know where the camera's active. But we can't do that. Why not? We cannot even leave the signs up. We have to take the signs down when we move the cameras. Because it's lying to people? Is that the, the argument? Apparently, I don't understand Apparently, I don't understand it either because it's I'm, a great deterrent. I'm willing to lie to people so they slow down in front of the school. That's yeah, me too. Me. I'm yeah. willing to put up signs that say yeah. photo uh, radar in effect when the camera's not even there. Um, if that gets people to slow down, Sean, uh, let's just put a uh, like a cardboard cutout of like my mom just pointing her finger. Like, right <laughs> let's just start there. <laughs> um, but the red light cameras, yes, it's been a tremendously successful program. You know, I I said it uh, in broadcast media this week. It's really simple for the people who are whining and crying that this is a cash grab. Follow the damn rules of the road. Yeah, yeah. Get your head out of your ass. You don't own the road yourself, and you getting somewhere 10 seconds faster does not give you the right to go flying through a school zone 10, 15, 20 kilometers above the speed limit. Follow the speed limit, don't run red lights, and you're not going to get a ticket. It's really, really simple. It's basic rules of the road that so many people seem to have forgotten. So I'm uh, very, very much in favor of this. I'd take 50 red light cameras and 50 photo radar cameras if we could get them. Uh, but there is a procurement process, there is a rollout process, and uh, at the end of the day, there's a budget implication. So we can only move so fast on this, but fully support Don't they, for the most program. part, pay for themselves? Uh, they do, uh, yes, they do in the long run pay for themselves. So, um, in fact, we're able to do this because the program has been so successful that there is funding available to invest in more equipment to expand it. So, it's at the end of the day, there's an upfront cost, but it's money we get back. I, you know what? It's funny. I, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who can't be arsed to, to uh, do the speed limit on a residential street. My kids uh, grew up uh, going to uh, an elementary school on Viscount, just a, a little bit south of, of uh, commissioners. It's a 40, and I would routinely, almost on a daily basis, see some jerk flying past the school at 65, mm-hmm. 70, 70 even sometimes. I mean, first of all, what, how, how big of a hurry do you have to be in to do 70 in a 40? So, you know, if, if there's technology... Just to, to, to cut you off one, for yeah. one second, I know that some people are going to listen to this and say, oh, they should put traffic calming measures on, on Viscount in that case. Those are already there. Yeah. And people still fly down yeah. that road. And, and you yeah. can't put... I, my understanding is you can't put speed bumps there because it's a bus route. Right. But... Uh, you know, and, and I remember one time um, emailing Virginia Ridley when she was the ward counselor and saying, you know, Virginia, I'm emailing you today, not as a member of the media, but as a constituent. This is a serious problem in front of the school. The next day there was a there was a officer, you know, doing speed. And, and truthfully, for a little while, it got better. Didn't last. People are still driving like maniacs up that street, as I'm sure they do on lots of streets where where schools are. To me, I, I go back to what. Uh, what I, I just kind of see is the idea of the technology, uh, the technology is available to us. Let's use it. Let's, uh, you know, maybe we say instead of having a police officer taking their time away from other things to do speed enforcement in front of schools, 
why not just say, you know what? Yeah, you might just run into a, a photo radar installation in front of any school. So be aware. My, uh, my mom spends her winters in Florida, in Dunedin. And uh, there's a school not too far from her place. And this is, a, this is a thing at all schools in that area. School zones, the speed limit goes down to 15 miles an hour. Mm. You literally have to basically crawl down, down a street in front of a school. And in, in all of the years that I've been going down there, and I've asked people about it because this is something that is of interest to me, never heard anyone complain about right. it. They say, you know what? Uh, yeah, I don't mind adding 45 seconds to my commute in order to, to protect the lives of these kids. And it just, to me, it's it, when I see people driving, doing 65 in that 40 in front of a school, it reeks of selfishness. It reeks of, of quite frankly, a little bit of, you know, I, I almost kind of think like, do, do you even care about the safety of children or, or pedestrians of any age if you're doing, doing that kind of speed in, in a 40 zone or in a residential area with a yeah. 50? Like, to me, it's just, again, this is a simple rule. And if you can't follow it, don't come bitching to me if you get a ticket in the mail because you got busted by photo radar. Yeah. Again, technology is available to us. Let's use it. And that goes for the red light cameras. And, and too. I know that the tickets go to the vehicle owner, uh, not to necessarily mm -hmm. the driver. But, you know, and I said this to somebody who emailed as soon as this article came out uh, in the news earlier this week, I had somebody emailing, this is just a cash grab. And I fired right back and I said, because, well, I might not be the driver. And I said, well, how many times do you give your car out to somebody you don't know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's either your spouse or your kid yeah. or maybe a close friend. And if they get a ticket, you're the one responsible for giving them your car in the first place. Go to them and make them pay it. Yep. That's It's that simple. You're yeah. not getting points deducted from your license, so you're not getting demerit points. Um, so I have very little sympathy for, for the argument that, well, I wasn't the one driving. Well, somebody you knew was driving it. Because you just don't throw your keys to your car to a random stranger on the road and say, take her for a spin. Yeah. Uh, I live on Wavell. You talked about the speed limit or the speeds on Viscount. Before we uh, made some changes to Wavell over the last couple of years, we did a speed a study in a 40. And there's not one. There's two schools there. There's mm -hmm. St. Pius Catholic Elementary and there's Prince Charles right. Public Elementary. So there's two side by side. We were getting speeds of 67 kilometers an hour in a 40. Yeah. Right. It's crazy. I mean, how much of a jerk do you have to be to do that? Yeah. So I, well, th this is why. I and then I hear people say, well, I, you know, I, I'm in, you know, I'm in a hurry. I got to get to, they're not even going to a destination on Wave Out. They're using it as a cut through right. because they don't want to stop at the traffic lights on Dundas. Yeah. Well, I think it would be useful. And this is where the question of the red light cameras comes in. I think we're in general. I, I think there's a lot of people who on, on principle, I understand, are, are opposed to them. I think there's a lot of people on principle who are opposed to the uh, increase of perhaps cameras to um, enforce the law, which I understand. However, when we're talking about this, this report is specific to or mostly specific to red light cameras. And that's why I think in terms of priority, I would be very interested to understand what the cost is. If we're, In other words, if we're going to spend a million dollars or a million three on red light cameras, what would be the cost to instead of increasing from 10 to 20 in terms of uh, um, intersections, getting those cameras, actually moving them to vulnerable or how do I say high frequency uh, uh, school districts? Well, that so get here's the, the challenge, Nathan. You, yes, we can move them around, but Dundas and Clark, you and I both know that intersection very well. Very we well. might occasionally go through it on our way to a pub. Um, <laughs> but that intersection, that red light camera has been there since the, the program began. Even still, here we are several years later, 
over a thousand violations last year. Right. So even where they are, and even though we're seeing improvements where they are, we're still having a ridiculous no, like three a thousand violations running a red light. Well, more than a thousand. Like that's three times a day. Right. Well, I mean, ra- every day, racing seven the days yellow, a week, all year round. Racing the yellow is is almost baked into the average London driver's DNA. It seems like you see it every single day, yep. every multiple times. I'm a, I'm a hundred yards from the intersection. Oh, it just turned yellow. Better floor it. I yeah. mean, you see it all the time. Yep. No, I I think that well, really, the question would be in terms of the red light cameras. If they are in fact paying for themselves, then I wonder who would have the courage or interest in arguing, okay, if they're paying for themselves, let's incur a higher capital cost. If we're going to pay a million bucks and expect a million three in return on enforcement, why aren't we considering at least paying five million bucks and maybe getting four and a half million in return, losing a bit of money on it? But, you know, so the property taxes would go up, but at least you're getting the enforcement uh, everywhere. Again, in terms of if we're talking about it uh, being an either or, or if we're talking about cameras in general, I would argue that um, I think you're going to get more uh, up, uh, uptake and interest and approval in the community. If you start with the easy ones, which I would say are the school zones and expand that market. And the people get a little bit more comfortable with cameras. They understand, you know what? I don't, I didn't love these things. It's a cash grab, but you know what? At least my daughter or my grandson is going to be safer, you know, going to play in the park or coming home from school. And then you can scale it up from there if it is in fact, and I'd say it's an, and both, it shouldn't be an either, or it's an, and both. And that's really what the report is recommending is puts, put some more of each out there. I think the thing to remember about the red light cameras though, is where they're being deployed are where the most serious accidents happen Mm -hmm. as well. So I, I agree with you school zones, like they should be a priority. They continue to be. I wish the province would change some of the stupid rules so that we didn't have to jump through these hoops of like big, long uh, warning periods before the cameras go active and taking the signs out and putting the signs in and all that. It'd be easier if we could just leave them and rotate the cameras Has around there been base. an attempt to change but, those rules or no? Has there been well, a request? Well, I, I might be having a chat with uh, an MPP from london elgin middlesex soon yeah. about uh, perhaps looking at some ways that he could help us with some cost hey, efficiencies there city council likes to write letters to the province but I if uh, one. when you talk yeah. about the red light cameras where those are going are where you know sadly where the the high injury or yeah. even fatality accidents are happening so there is a trade-off in terms of yes school zones priority red light cameras though are going where the hot the most serious incidents are occurring so it's uh that's why it needs to be an and both rather than an either or. I guess maybe I just don't see a lot of people or maybe I'm not paying attention to others going through uh, the red lights. I haven't seen that. I know it happens. Well, the, then you the, should put the, your phone down when you're behind the wheel yeah, and pay right. attention, Nathan no, Caranchi. No. Yeah, exactly. I, I got, I've gotten that lecture <laughs> years ago and don't worry, I don't make that mistake anymore. So. Yeah, it just, yeah, I think it's, it should go through relatively smoothly. I don't see there being a whole lot of opposition on this, but we'll see, you know, the stranger things have happened. Uh, one last story I want to talk about before we uh, wrap up our chat here today. And it was a story that was done by London Free Press this week in regards to what's going on in Eagle Heights Public School. And you may recognize the name of the school if you didn't see the story this week. But uh, during uh, the uh, International Day Against uh, Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia, uh, about a third of the school's population was missing. Now, there are about a significant percentage of that school's population is, is kids who are Muslim. Now, not every Muslim kid skips school that day. I got messages from some parents who are Muslim who sent their kids to school. However, 
a significant percentage of the 400 kids that missed school were Muslim kids. Why? While the pride flag was up and there was going to be conversations about being against homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. Sean, what was your reaction to that story? Uh, Incredibly disappointed. This is not the first time. And there has to be a very serious conversation with London's Muslim community. And again, I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. Miriam Hamu is a dear, dear friend of mine and completely supportive, has walked with me in the Pride Parade and, and very supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. And she's not the only one. Uh, there's a number there's of countless, folks. There's countless, huge yeah, there's, numbers. There's, there's huge numbers. This of, is the minority within yeah. the community, but when it's 400 kids from the same school at the same it's time. It's very noticeable. Yeah. And it... it really is a problem because this is a community that itself wants Londoners to recognize Islamophobia is a problem and wants to see steps taken to address that. But at the same time, steps need to be taken within their own community to address the homophobia that's there. And it, it is there. It is strong. We saw it with a, uh, a flyer, a poster design at Western. And Here we had a local imam come out and, and condemn that situation. Um, it was the First council of, all, of imams, it's, actually. It's Western. It's a, it's a place of education. It, it's, it's a place where uh, ideas and concepts should be able to be f- shared freely. Uh, and that was a place where, uh, quite honestly, an imam had no business putting uh, their nose into. Um, this wasn't happening uh, at their mosque. This was happening at a school. And so a conversation needs to happen here. Tolerance has to go both ways. If you want London to be serious about combating Islamophobia, you also have, a con- have to have a conversation, and it's a tough conversation, but with some members of your community who are continuing to very much uh, demonstrate very homophobic uh, actions in our community. Um, and you know what? The rainbow flag going up a flagpole is not turning your kid gay. I'm sorry, folks. If that's If you think that there's some sort of agenda or that that grooms people to uh an lgbtq plus existence you're just delusional um people are just born this way that's how it is get over it uh pull yourself into the 21st century this is canada everybody needs to be included here and the best way to have that happen is to make sure that our kids are learning that lesson well, the one thing that Craig, I appreciate you saying that, Sean. The one thing that Craig knows when he brings me on here is that I'm going to give an opinion that usually pisses everybody off. So, so here it goes. Um, I think first and foremost, I believe, and I think a majority of people of all faiths and backgrounds would believe that, especially when it comes to elementary schools, parents ultimately have the authority to decide <laughs> whether or not the kid goes to the school and for what reason they're choosing yep. for them to go to school on a daily basis. One day, yes. One day, no. Um, that's first and foremost. So. I think it's an issue of parents before it's an issue of faith or background um, moving on from there. Um, Having said that, I understand and empathize with uh, a lot of the people that uh, have taken offense uh, to this. I take more of an offense, quite frankly, to what we saw a year ago in... Uh, at Western University. We're not talking about an elementary school. Yeah, we're talking about a university. Talking about a university. I agree. And what did we see? We saw a poster for this same day that depicted two hijabi women, um, I think kissing or about to kiss. And this generated a petition that got received tens of thousands of signatures, not just from in London, of course, but from beyond. And it didn't seem like a lot of people had the courage to speak up about it then. And that's not a shot at anybody specifically. It's just... This is not new. 
This is not a new conversation. And if this, you know, we're talking about elementary school and with all due respect, we're not talking about simply raising a flag. We're talking about substance and curriculum and conversations that are happening within the wall. And if you are interested in having a conversation, conversations necessitate at least two parties. And for as much as we have, or, or, or you know, you, Sean, or others may have an opinion to, to give, I think you've also demonstrated a good job in, in other issues in listening as well. And we also need to expect and anticipate that what we hear is not going to be super comfortable and it's not going to be comfortable for everybody. And that's okay. Um, but the one thing I will say, you know, again, as a straight guy, I have, uh, I like, to, you know, straight guy, but I think I have some street cred. A cute cred. straight guy. Yeah, but I, I think I have some still street, street cred. <laughs> I will defer to you, Sean. I think I have some street cred in the gay community. I also think I have some street cred in the Muslim community as well. Um, I, I, I understand and I respect the Muslim people in this city for standing with what they believe. I don't think that, I don't think that the courage is there for people like me who are Christian or Catholic to do things like this or to initiate a conversation on these grounds often enough. For as much as I have differences of faith with people who are Muslim, I respect the fact that they've earned their respect and that they do these types of things and enter these types of conversations with strength. And, you know, it, it's, it, we're not fighting the battles of the 80s and the 90s. There's a lot of people who think they're tough when, in fact, they're bullies. People will go up and, you know, do a demonstration and rip pages out of the Bible. Try and do that with the Quran and see what happens. We'll see, what, like, yeah. see what the response would be. You know, there's, there's Republican senators in the states I always make fun of where they go, oh, you know, here's a picture of Xi Jinping, the leader of, of China, you know, dressed like Winnie the Pooh. You know, oh, you think that's tough? Go do that with George Floyd and see what happens to you. Or if you're really tough and want to have a fight and, and be tough, do it. And I think that Eagle Heights is, is very indicative of this because what we see is, you know, it's not just raising a flag. There are specifics going on. I think that there are many people, for example, this is not me saying, for example, there's many people that are very comfortable with lesbians and gay uh, uh, people or, or what, however you would articulate it. I think there's a lot of people that have an issue with the proliferation of the transgender movement recently. That's just the truth. So if we're going to have these conversations, they need to be discussed, but it is a two-way street. And it also needs to be discussed. They may agree with us or, or people may agree with, with a certain perspective we would communicate. But it, they may also say, hey, maybe yes, but not for my 12-year-old. Hey, my the LGBTQ plus community doesn't even agree on all the issues in, in and amongst itself. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's really important as I, you know, talked about there are many folks in the Muslim community who are very supportive and, and allies and and uh, they've got to have some tough conversations but I think it's also important to point out uh, and and I know Craig you did this on Twitter uh, in a little Twitter spat you had uh, about this issue no, too there, but there some people that were not happy um, which is, it, 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 most of them well, the ones I know were all respectful this is fine. not just yeah. one faith either yeah. uh, and the uh, situation in Norwich Township is the Dutch Reformed Church that is not a Muslim faith but let's be honest, it is the congregation of that church that is pushing the anti-LGBTQ plus agenda in that community. So it is not a, a exclusive to the Muslim faith or any other faith. But, but I noticed you didn't hedge it the same way you did the Muslim faith, 
Sean. You didn't say, well, I know Muslims who, didn't, who, you know, who aren't like this, etc. But we're very eager and comfortable to say it's the Dutch Reformed Church. I know Dutch Reformers who wouldn't do the same thing. But we're very eager and, and uh, acceptable to, to throw those types of allegations around, which have been done. I mean, credit to the London Free Press. Because at least they're being consistent with the reporting on this subject matter. And I mean, it's so funny because we've witnessed the last week, whether you're talking about safe supply or whether you're talking about this issue, it's now the, you know, established left-wing progressives well, and I don't know that are the ones I... crying fake, fake news when, when they get a, an article that they don't seem to report. Well, this is working against yeah. us and this is going to foster some of And I don't know truth. if I know anybody from the Dutch Reformed Church community because you may not be able to visibly see them. And, and there is, in part, the challenges with the Muslim community. They are often visibly identifiable. You know, we have women who wear hijabs. Uh, they are often of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, so they don't blend into and when the, it comes to the white community and there it's easy to target. It, so, absolutely. Yes. So, the, so there's a bit of a, a challenge in terms of, uh, of saying, you know, you know, people from the Dutch reform community who, uh, are supportive too. That may well be, but there is a particular congregation in a particular town who is leading the charge against this. So that is, and that is very clear. Um, and I have no problems calling that out. If there was one particular mosque in London who was doing this and the other uh, mosques were not, I would have no problem calling that out either. Well, what, um, did, what did the mosque do for the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia? What did they do? What did, it, they have a school there. Can we ask that question? Are we allowed to say that? That's a tough conversation. I mean, again, <laughs> you know, similar to what yeah. you're saying, they have a congregation. We're talking about the Dutch reformers. The, sa the same thing applies here. And what I'm saying is that, at least with both of them, they're willing to say, but be it the Dutch reformers in Oxford or the mosque here in London, they're willing to say confidently, no, this issue that we will retain the authority to teach our children and, what we wish and to And you teach. talk about the, you know, the parental authority, parental choice, whatever language you want to put around it. These are public schools. So if you don't want your kid exposed to that kind of teaching, guess what? Pay out of pocket and send them to a private religious school because those things exist too. But just as importantly as that, do you really think grades six and sevens and eights who are hitting their teenage years are not having these conversations amongst themselves in, in the schoolyards. And the problem with that is the information may not be accurate. That's why it's valuable to have that in the schools for, you know, obviously you're not having the same conversation that you're with a, a kindergarten or a grade one student that you're having with a grade seven or eight. But you're delusional if you don't think grade sevens and eights are, are sexually maturing and aware of these discussions that are happening out there. And well, here's the thing that, that and again, going back to what you said when we started this, Sean, extremely disappointed. And, and I share that because, and, and Craig knows this, like when we were talking about this yesterday, I, I mean, I, I have a member of my immediate family who, who is, is gay and, and I'm very sensitive to this kind of thing. And I get, I got so angry yesterday. I was so mad and, and you know, and, and when you're angry, you, uh, you know, the temptation is there to give in to your worst impulses. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, uh, my, my first kind of, you know, initial raw reaction was, you know, God damn it. I mean, like this city came together by and large. I mean, obviously not not uh, completely, but this city by and large came together when the Avsal family was killed. And we said, you know what? Enough. Enough Islamophobia. This is, you know, we cannot live this way. And so yesterday when when I see this free press story and it does mention sources at the board say you know a lot of the students were muslim uh, 
my initial raw reaction was, you know, that that really is not cool. But then you take a step back, you think about it, and, and to, to Nathan's point, yes, it comes down to parental authority. But then my question becomes, okay, so what in the hell are you scared of? What exactly are you up in arms about? About the possibility that your grade six or grade seven or even grade five, grade four child learns that gay people exist and they are our neighbors, they are our coworkers, they are our fellow students. And they deserve to be living in places that are safe for them, where they are, you know, and, and you don't have to embrace them. You don't have to, but don't give me this, sorry, don't give me this bullshit about, well, I don't support that. Nobody wants, nobody gives a shit about your support. What they get, what they care about is, is your recognition that gay people exist and they are deserving of the same things that you are deserving of. And that is to live safely and, and quite frankly, in an environment where they don't have to be scared all the time. I don't think there's any, for me anyway, there's not really anywhere else to go beyond that. It, it just comes down to me for, uh, again, what are you afraid of? What, what exactly do you not want your kid to be exposed to at school? Because all they're talking about, like this is like, <laughs> no elementary school teacher is saying to little Johnny, okay, so this is how you do this with another man. No, they're talking about, hey, you know what? You're uh, the guy who, who, who works for the landscape company who cuts your parents' lawn. He has a boyfriend, you know, and that's okay. That's all like that's to me, that's all it is. So so what exactly are you afraid of? You're like, uh, how why is it you're afraid of your child learning empathy and learning acceptance? I, that, that's the big mystery for me, really. Anyway, I mean, I'm not 100 percent sure. Just again, to be candid, I'm not sure it's actually as that may have been what I was taught, in other words, 10 years ago uh, about the subject in schools. I think it has definitely progressed. And I think you'll find as many people inside the LGBT community that would say so that it has progressed in terms of the curriculum, what they're taught at what ages. If that's an open question, if we're interested to hear what those things are, because it's often, um, I don't want to say it's kept private, but it's not like the curriculum is on a billboard. And this is not new. Uh, so maybe parents then should be taking the time to learn about the actual curriculum instead of keeping their kids home from school. Okay. So if they do learn about the curriculum and then they want to change it, what are you going to say? Because they're the parents and they're the voters. And then the people, the cowards who are currently elected at the school board are not going to be there anymore. All the tough talkers during election time who say they're going to champion these issues and do this when it counts, they're silent. They're in the mumble tank today and they say nothing. And, and I say that be it at all levels of government. You're here docking about it, but where is yep. everybody else? Well, I'm not speaking for everybody else. I'm right, speaking right, for exactly. me. But, you know, so I'm going to share just, you know, a, a final thought on this. You know, we have an, an international day against Islamophobia that that we recognize or, or uh, to end Islamophobia that we recognize. Uh, I'm not Muslim, but I participate in that. Uh, same. And, and guess what? Um, that gets recognized at schools too. Yes, it does. So yes. I expect the same level of respect and participation back uh, from people, whether they're in the Muslim community, whether they're in uh, any other faith community, whether it's, uh, you know, a different ethnic group, because here's at the end of the day why this matters so much for the lgbtq plus community if you're black if you're uh middle eastern and and wear hijab uh and are muslim if you're uh a person of a different uh diversity background you don't have to 
come out to your parents that you're black or that you're Muslim. You don't have to come out to your parents the way to your or come out to your friends that you are black or that you are Muslim or that you are Asian or or of any other. For LGBTQ plus people, that is still the reality because we are not yet to the point in society where we just recognize that the existence is there. When we get to that point, then maybe we don't have to do these things, but we are not there yet because so many people want to bury their heads in the sand and go about their lives in denial. When we can get to a day where LGBTQ plus people do not have to come out because it is just accepted that they are there, then we can talk about whether or not we have to have these days in the first place. We are sadly a long way away from that day. Here's, here's what I'll say, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up with this. Um, I understand the thought process of, hey, we don't want to be coming off as like, well, we're rallying against the Muslim community. Because as we said, the vast majority of the Muslim community is, is totally on board with this. But here's who I feel sad for. There is almost certainly a kid who is in grade seven or eight, probably several kids who are in grade seven or eight at Eagle Heights Public School. And they got to school on Tuesday and they looked around and they could tell that place was real empty and they knew it was because of them. That would suck. Bullseye. That would be really, really difficult. Like it's, it's hard to be 13 or 14 under any circumstances. That's a tough time in your life. But when that's going on, that's, 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 that's who I felt for yesterday. For the most part, everyone else, this doesn't really impact them. If you don't go to that school, it's, 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 a, it's a thing that happened. It's in the news. It doesn't really impact you. But that's who I felt for when that, when that story was, was, was sort of making its rounds was that, man, I feel bad for that kid who would have been sitting at school knowing this place is empty and it's because of, of who I am. Yeah, that would be really, really hard. That, so I think that the parents that made that decision deserve some criticism for putting that kid through that. Um, and that's, that, that, that's where I'm going to stand on. That doesn't mean that every, everyone deserves criticism who's involved here and, and that every single Muslim kid who goes to that school didn't show up for school yesterday. I know for a fact that's not true. I, I received messages from several parents at that school yesterday. I know for a fact that's not true. But I, would just, I feel really bad for a kid who was in that situation that I just described. That would be really, really difficult. Uh, we'll leave the uh, the Friday roundtable there. Thank you very much to Nathan and to Scott and for, to Sean for doing the show with us this week. Thanks to all of you for listening and downloading and subscribing to the Craig Needles podcast, which, of course, you can find at ClassicRock981.com and LondonNewsToday.ca. The Craig Needles podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 